All right, if you'll take your Bibles, please open them to the book of Hebrews and the seventh chapter. We are moving forward as we are examining the book of Hebrews. And uh, join me, if you would, out of reverence for the reading of God's Word as we turn to Hebrews chapter 7, and we'll begin again at the 11th verse. Hebrews chapter 7, beginning at verse 11. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar." Let's pray. God, you have done a profound transformation in sending Christ. This side of Calvary, we have a hard time appreciating the difference. But God, we know that the work that you do is always good and always perfect. So help us see the majesty of all that you have brought to pass in the death of Christ for our sin. Help us see the majesty of all that you have brought to pass in the change that you have made in the priesthood. And help us see the majesty of all that you have brought to pass in saving a people by your strength and for your glory. God, let us honor Christ in all that is said and done. And I pray, God, that you would open hearts, that you would plant your word deep, and that you would cause the dead to live. I pray, God, that anything that is amiss would be struck from my mind and struck from our hearts but that your truth would be magnified and pressed in. Lord, that it would be planted deep and that it would grow and bear fruit. We pray that Christ be exalted, for it's in his name we ask it. Amen. Amen. So I want to think about why there's a need for a new tribe to officiate at the altar. It's kind of a strange thing to consider. Why is there no longer a need for the altar of sacrifice at which Levi ministered? In other words, why is there no longer an ongoing work? The prophetic words which the writer of Hebrews uses addressing the concern, um, it's a strangeness of another tribe. It's an oddity. It's, It's hard for him to get the words to express how profoundly disturbing it is to a Jew that this high priest of this new order in this new way of walking in truth is not from the tribe of Levi. And he ties it back to the transformation of the law and he ties it back to the transformation that has occurred in in the very different way in which we relate to God because of Christ. And the word for another when he says another tribe is heteros. And it means something completely different. It means something absolutely not alike. In no way is it the same. In no way is there a comparison. It is absolutely, completely new. So this new tribe, this new priesthood, has no prior connection to the altar, to its purpose. It is a different kind of tribe. And with the difference in tribes, we enjoy a different interaction with God through the worship and offering that is brought to us. With the new tribe officiating at the altar and the new altar as well, we find that the impact and the effect of that officiation is profoundly changed and unspeakably superior. So I want to think with you about the different tribal roles. It's not something that we've really talked about much, but there were roles and there were attributes and there were characteristics that were attached to the tribes. And, and in, this, in preparing for this sermon, it's fascinating, and I, I had to cut off a lot of really cool rabbit trails that have no real bearing. But, but I do want to think with you about the fact that Jacob, on his deathbed, pronounced prophetic blessings over his sons. And it's important to understand that this blessing was going to shape the nation that his family would become. Jacob's words give us insight into the defining attributes and character markers of these tribes. So turn to me to Genesis 49. I promise we're not going to read the whole chapter. We're going to cherry pick a couple out of here. But I, I, want, to, I want to look with you at Genesis 49.1 um, so that you understand the impact of what we're actually going to see. So Genesis 49.1, Joseph's on his, or Jacob's on his deathbed. He's about to pronounce his blessing. And it says, Jacob called his sons together and said, 
Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Now, this is speaking 400 years before the Exodus, 400 years before Israel really could be called a nation. But Jacob is talking about how his sons and their families and their attributes are going to become the nation. And each, each son has a blessing pronounced over him. But in, in the beginning, remember, what tribe did God choose to be the priesthood? Levi, Levi right? And, and it is a strange thing to consider that God would choose Levi because Levi wasn't really a nice character. Levi had some anger issues and Levi had some problems. So skip down to verse 5. And listen to Jacob's pronouncement over Levi. Simeon and Levi are brothers. They are instruments of cruelty, are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter into their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob, and I will scatter them in Israel. So, if God chose Levi, and this is a character sort of assessment of Levi, what does it tell us about the law? Is the law gentle and kind and merciful and, and all, oh, it's okay, it doesn't really matter? No, the law is fierce, and it's full of harsh judgment. It destroyed everyone who did not fulfill its demands, and it did it unapologetically. That was its job. We get confused sometimes about the role of the law in how we relate to God. We often tend to think that the law, if we just keep it pretty well, will make us pleasing in the sight of God. But nothing could be further from the truth. Because to enter into an attempt to be obedient unto the law in order to be pleasing to God, we set ourselves in a path which is down this line of Simeon. It is harsh. It is absolute, and it is unrelenting. And the law says, if you will obey me and keep me, if you will set yourself to do what I tell you to do, then you must do it without fail all the days of your life, without any exception. You are never permitted to grant yourself the benefit of the doubt. You are never permitted to make an excuse for that thing that you thought, that thing that you said, that thing that you did. If you do anything outside the bounds of the law, the law will condemn you. Now, it's not on a case-by-case basis. It's not that God's going to measure this action and determine, is this action inside or outside of the law? And then God is going to measure this action and determine, is this action inside or outside of the law? And he's going to divide them good from bad. And at the end, he's going to look at the balance of your life and say, okay, you were mostly good, so you get in. That's not how it works. It's a cumulative assessment of your life. In other words, did your entire life 100% meet the demands of the law? Or did your entire life 100% fail to meet the perfection and the demands of the law? And the answer to that for all of us is absolutely I failed. This is the law that was given. It is harsh. It is cruel. It is without mercy. And so as Jacob is pronouncing his his um, statement to his sons, he says, I'm going to divide you among your brethren. Because he didn't want Simeon and Levi to be together as nations or as tribes within the nation with large holdings so that they could then rule and dominate the rest of the tribes. But God chose Levi and gave to them the role of administering the law, of officiating at the altar. But notice God honored what Jacob said. God obviously told Jacob what to say. But did Levi receive an inheritance in the land? No. What did Levi receive? Levi received, we just read it a couple of weeks ago, 42 cities scattered throughout the land. So they were not allowed to be congregating in a power source because the law itself already exerts so much control and so much influence that if they were permitted to be together, 
it would have been absolutely unbearable. And we can see from how the, the people who administered the law in the day of Jesus abused the power that they weren't wrong in doing this. Do you remember why the parents of, of um, Bartimaeus did not confess that their son had been born and that Jesus had healed him? Remember what it tells us in John? They were silent for fear of the Jews. They were silent because they were afraid that if they spoke the truth, they would be kicked out of the synagogue. And when Bartimaeus spoke the truth, what happened? They kicked him out of the synagogue. So they weren't wrong in their fear. They were wrong in how they responded to it, but their fear was spot on. I think we read somewhere about a guy named Nicodemus. And how did Nicodemus come to Jesus? At night. Why? Because he was afraid of the Jews. And, and he was a leader among the Jews. He was a part of the council. Right? So we see that there was no misjudgment in distributing this power because of the nature of it. Now, this, this just as an interesting side note, the one rabbit I couldn't quite kill, Simeon also did not receive an inheritance like unto the rest. Simeon took his inheritance out of the center of Judah's. So Simeon's inheritance is completely circumscribed by Judah. So Simeon doesn't have any real interaction with the rest of the tribes of Israel. And that also means that when Simeon went with the, the rebellion against Rehoboam and went with the northern kingdoms, did Simeon get his inheritance? No. They abandoned their inheritance and surrendered the ground to Judah because they went with the northern kingdoms. You see, God was determined that the law would be that which was the thing that bound Israel together. It was the law that would constrain. It was the law that would grant them any hope of understanding what God said. But he also understood that having a law that fierce and that exacting and that overpressing, that, that overbearing, that, that demanding reality of what the law was, it would become very, very easy for the people who administered it to abuse it. And do we not see this today? Where law is without checks and balances, it becomes tyrannical. And tyrants abound in this day and age, not only in the church, but in our nation and in the world as large. People who are so filled with their own power and their own desire for power and their own determination to mandate and, and control what others think and believe and say and do, that they will do everything in their power and much outside of their power to control the world. But you see, God, in His mercy, even by giving a law that was harsh, determined that He would do all that was possible to be done to strip the people in charge of it of much of the power that they would have had had they been together. He, he controlled that. He watched over it. So these two things kept the tribes from dominating the rest of the nation. But the law did indeed become a bondage under the religious leaders who held the people in thrall. Judah, however, was a different sort of character. Now it's interesting to consider because Judah, we, if we read the accounts of Judah in the book of Genesis, he had his own problems. He was not necessarily the nicest of guys. He was not necessarily the fairest of guys. He was not necessarily the most moral of men. But when God determined to bring Judah to the fore, he did it knowing everything that Judah was. So look down at verse 8, Genesis 49. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise, and your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. 
So when God determined to bring Judah to the altar to minister before him, the character of a king is reflected in the relationship that this provides. And Judah was indeed the kingly tribe. It was out of Judah that the kingship arose. The initial kingship was given to the tribe of Benjamin, but Benjamin was not ever supposed to be the king. Judah was the king. And we find David, the descent of Judah, being the king that unites all of Israel together. We find his son Solomon. And we find the Davidic line being carried down in the kingship in the southern tribe of Judah throughout the rest of the history. And this reality of the kingship of Judah is well accepted. But you see, the priesthood wasn't supposed to be a part of the kingship. These were supposed to be separate offices. And they were supposed to be separate offices because the kingship would have had too much power had it also ruled over the altar, right? We see this from our own history. We see this from the fact that whenever you put a religious power in control over a nation, bad things happen. We, we see this from, from the Roman Empire. We see this from, from, the, from, from the reality of, of all of the manipulations that went on in the Middle Ages for the church to try and control the rise and fall of nations. We see all these things going on, and we see the same sort of thing happening even as our nation seeks to say, well, no, we are not being religious. They are giving us a different religion and pretending it's not religion. And they're doing it to mandate not only what you believe, but what you think and what you say and how you act. They're, they're doing it to mandate these things because that's the source of power. Beloved, hear this. God established a kingship in Judah. And so when the new priesthood is also connected to the kingship, something better be different or we've got real problems. That makes sense? The new kingship had better be something completely different and the new priesthood has to be something absolutely unheard of or what's going to happen is going to be very, very bad. It's a good thing for us that God knew exactly what he was doing. So I want to think with you about these two altars, the Levitical and the Judaic. So the Levitical altar was, first of all, marked out by a continual sacrifice. It was marked out by the reality of the fact that the sacrifice it was making was impotent to accomplish the purpose it was set out to do. The sacrifice could not complete the work of removing sin. It made, therefore, slaves of Israel. They were in bondage to the law, and they were in bondage to the priesthood that mandated the law because the priesthood ultimately had the power to control whether or not their sacrifices, which were required and perpetual, would be accepted. Do you remember when Jesus first entered into the temple and he found the temple filled with what? Money changers, right? Now, what was the job of the money changers? Well, the money changers were there at the behest of the priesthood. The money changers were, were the guys in the middle because the priesthood said, we will not accept any offerings that are not temple coin. We will not accept any payment that is not temple coin. And we will not accept any offerings that are not acceptable in our sight. And if you've just traveled a couple of hundred miles with your little lamb walking on the road, guess what? Your little lamb's looking pretty beat up by now. So we want you to buy a little lamb from us that we will then sacrifice on your behalf but because, you know, price is driven by demand and supply, we're going to jack the price way, way up. And it wasn't these evil guys in the middle that were the problem. They were doing what they were allowed and told to do. It was the priesthood driving this. They were making sure that they got their cut. So we see this, this slavery, which is absolutely... Just, and that's just one small example. We see this slavery being perpetuated on the people when the leaders of, of the religious orders, when the priesthood, this Levitical altar, received power that it was not supposed to have. See, the Levitical altar is a shadow. It's a physical reality, but it's a shadow of the spiritual truth. And it was being administered by those who did not see the truth. When Jesus came and he cast out the money changers, he said, my father's house 
will be a house of prayer. It will be a place where people commune with God, not a place for you to fatten yourselves and make your wallets heavy. And that was the problem. The Judaic altar, however, removes these things. The Judaic altar is one sacrifice for all. No longer is there a perpetual sacrifice required. No longer are we going to see a time when the the altar will be continually in use. The sacrifice has been made, it has been accepted by God, and it is over. The sacrifice is the death of Christ, and it is the blood of Christ shed for sin, and there is never again going to be a need for any other sacrifice to be reinstituted. It's done. God no longer will accept the blood sacrifice of animals. It has been one sacrifice for all, and for everyone who is covered, we have been forgiven. Now, Paul talks about a slavery that comes with the gospel, but it is not a slavery to sin, nor is it a slavery to the law, but it is a slavery to righteousness. Why? Why would he talk about it in terms of slavery? Well, ultimately, it's because we all are slaves to our desires. When your desires rise up, you don't have the strength to go against that which you actually desire. Your only hope is that something inside of you or something outside of you will give you some sort of strength to overcome it. Which is why Paul talks about a slavery to righteousness, because God changes our hearts, changes our desires, changes our minds, changes our wants. He changes us to want what is right. He changes us to want Him. He changes us to desire righteousness above all things. And while to the outside world it might seem a slavery, and even to us it might perhaps at times seem to be, it is one that is good, and it is one that is righteous. And this is the reality of what the the altar of the tribe of Judah brings us. It is a spiritual core rather than a physical core. And it is a physical expression of a spiritual reality. Did Jesus come and die in the flesh? Yes. But was something else going on? Oh, absolutely there was. There was something deeply spiritual, something profoundly world and and creation-altering happening when Christ died. There is a spiritual reality that cannot be overlooked. So we have these two altars that are set on completely different platforms. They are set on completely different foundations. They are set on completely different sets of rules, completely different understandings, completely different things. If that's true, then these two tribal altars, the the tribe of Levi's altar is going to have a set of results that come out of what it is built from, and the tribe of Judah's altar is going to have a set of results that come out of what it is from. Make sense? Two profoundly different things running in two profoundly different tracks, are going to have two profoundly different results. Amen? So what are those results? Because this is the part that actually is amazing to me. We have different tribal results. So with the tribe of Levi and the tribe of Judah, we we have a difference in how we are welcomed to start with. Make sense? You're not really welcomed in the tribe of Levi. Look at Numbers chapter 1. We would have read it a little over half a year ago, but I'm sure you can still find it. Numbers chapter 1, and starting at verse 51... When the tabernacle is to go forward, the Levites shall take it down. And when the tabernacle is to be set up, the Levites shall set it up. The outsider who comes near it shall be put to death. The children of Israel shall pitch their tents, everyone by his own camp, everyone by his own standard, according to their armies. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony, that there may be no wrath upon the congregation of the children of Israel, and the Levites shall keep the charge of the tabernacle and the testimony. Now, what did God just say? Stay away. This is the one way that you can come anywhere near me, but you're not really welcome here. And everything in the law and everything in the Old Testament is designed to teach us that lesson. 
Why are we not welcome in the presence of God as we are under the law? We're not worthy. We're sinful. We're broken. We're ruined. There's nothing about us that is appealing to God. And sometimes you're going to hear somebody say something like this. Oh, he was a good man. Maybe he was a good man as men go. But there's going to be a lot of good men in hell. Amen. I'm sorry. That's the truth of it. Being good is not good enough. And it doesn't matter how nice you are, how much somebody loves you, how much of an impact you have in somebody's life, how desperately the world needs you or thinks it needs you, how much you love somebody, none of those things matter. For we are all ruined under sin. And God says to us plainly, in that condition, under the standards of the law, under your own righteousness, you are not welcome. Stay away. Well, what about the gospel? Well, we're not talking about the gospel when we're talking about the tribe of Levi. We're talking about the law. And didn't we say that there's going to be a completely different result under the Judaic sacrifice? Yes, we did. Look at me at Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, starting at verse 25. At that time, Jesus answered and he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come unto me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And what did Jesus say? He said that everything that matters has been given to me, and nobody knows the Father except me, Nobody knows me except the Father. And the only ones who will know either of us are the ones whom we will to reveal ourselves unto. And then he says, come to me. And I will teach you. And I will give you wisdom that you need. And I will help you know the Father. And I will open the eyes of your heart. Come to me. It is such a different welcome than stay away. Under the law, God said, stay away, you are not worthy. Under the gospel, Jesus said, you are not worthy, but I will make you worthy. Come to me. Come to me, all who are broken. Come to me, all who are weary. Come to me, all who are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. I will provide for you everything that your soul needs. And I will do this not because you are worthy, but because I am. You see, ultimately, the main difference between the altar of the Levites and the altar of Judah is the worthiness of the one who administers it and the worthiness of that which is given. Everything that we have in the gospel is based upon the worth of Christ. It is based upon His glory and based upon His value and based upon His love and upon His power and upon His work on our behalf. That is the heart of the gospel. It is Christ and Christ alone. And the law has no place except to show us how desperately we need Him. The law has no place except to show us our unworth. The law has no place except to cause us to cry out to Him for mercy. And when we do, we will find that we are welcomed. God does not ever shove us away. God never answers the cry for mercy with anything but yes. Which is why not only is the altar different in its welcome, it's also different in its fellowship. Even for those who were keeping the law, they were kept at their distance. They were kept in such a way that they didn't really get to walk with God too much. Look at Exodus chapter 19. 
Exodus chapter 19, verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to gaze at the Lord, and many of them perish. Let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. But Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. The Lord said to him, Away, get down and then come up, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests nor the people break through to come up against the Lord, lest he break out against them. Leviticus 16.2 The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come before me just at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. So the first of these is when God is about to give the Ten Commandments. The instruction at Exodus or Leviticus 16 occurs immediately after Aaron's sons have been consumed by the fire of God for offering profane fire on the altar. In other words, they said, well, hey, we serve God. We can come into his presence. We can fellowship with him however we want. We can make the rules. We can establish how we're going to worship and how the people are going to worship because, you know, we serve him. We're in with him. And fire came out from the altar and consumed them because the fellowship with God was constrained by God's will and purpose and not ours. And though Levi could come into the holy place and though Levi could in some way interact between Israel and God, they did it under very carefully prescribed means which had been ordained by God because they themselves were still unworthy. They could not come into his presence because they themselves were still defiled by sin. But Romans 8, 9 says, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So where the Old Testament said, stay away, even if you serve me, you come this far and no further, you come this far and no further by how I command you, only with blood, only at the right times, only in the right manner, only having washed yourself in the right way, only wearing the right clothes, this far and no further. Under the Judaic sacrifice, not only does God welcome us into his presence, but he himself comes to dwell inside of us. So much so, and so profoundly so, that Paul goes on to say that anyone who does not have the Spirit of God dwelling in them is not saved. So right away, a huge swath of the church teaches heresy by saying that you can be saved and not have the Holy Spirit and you have to pray for some weird special blessing so that you can get the Holy Spirit And the truth of the matter is this. When you are saved, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside of you, period. Or you are not saved. And that is not my word. That is the word of God's word unto you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in him is not his. So that means that if you belong to God, you are not only welcomed into his presence, you have fellowship with his Spirit who lives inside of you all the time. You're not a stranger to him. You fellowship with him. And this is not because of you. This is because of him. This is his work. This is his glory. This is his power. This is his altar. So what was the intention of the Levitical altar? Was it to take away sin? No, never. Never was its intention. All the Levitical altar did was put sin forward. In other words, God said, okay, you guys have offered the sacrifice that I prescribed for this time. I'm going to take all the sins that are lumped under this sacrifice and I'm going to tuck them away in account here where they're going to accrue interest until such time as I'm going to pay for them. He didn't tell them everything that was going on. He told them, do this. And God himself was the negotiator of the rest of it. Look at Romans chapter 3. We're going to see both halves of the altars laid out here in Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 21. Romans 3, beginning again at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, 
being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what did God do? He took all the sins of all of His people and He put them forward. He said, I'm going to pass over them for now. I'll deal with them at a later date. And in doing this, He opened Himself up to the charge of being unjust. But at the death of Christ, He demonstrated His own righteousness. He demonstrated the justice of what He had done. The fullness of all that this is tells us that the law was never intended to pay for sin. So the person who says, look, I don't need your Jesus and I don't need your church. I'm just going to do what the Bible tells me to do. I'm going to live a right life. I'm going to be a good person and I'll be fine when I get to heaven. They don't understand. The law was never intended to make anybody right. All the law did is shows how bad we really are because no matter how hard you try, you're going to fail and fail and fail and fail. And this is not a game by which we can get there by degrees and be almost good enough and God will fill in the rest. God requires absolute righteousness, which is why Jesus Christ is the only one who can provide righteousness for His people. Because Jesus is absolutely righteous. He is completely 100% righteous because He is completely 100% God. So we have both sides of the altar here. We have the fact that the Old Testament law was never intended to take away sin, but God, in the fullness of time, put Jesus forth as the sacrifice and as the one perpetuating the sacrifice for the sake of removing the sin and the guilt and the punishment that was due to His people. Because in Him we have life. All have sinned, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Both sides of it right here. So the intention of the altars is profoundly different. And the effectiveness of the altars is just as different. Could the Old Testament altar take away any sin? No, we just established that. But I want to show you something else. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. We're just going to read the first four verses here. Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. So the shadow cannot make the real effective. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But those sacrifices, in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. So this is the reality of what's going on. The effectiveness of the Old Testament did not make people feel like I'm doing okay. Because you always have the law standing over you, convicting you of everything you're not doing okay. So the people who say, I'm okay, I'm adequate, I'll live okay, I'll do a right thing, and God will be okay with me, where's the real disconnect? Do they have any understanding of what the law actually is? No, they don't. Nor do they have any real understanding of who God is, nor do they have any real understanding of their own guilt. They're completely blind and completely confused and completely lost because in the end, the law only makes you aware of sin. And as long as we constrain ourselves to that, was it effective? Yeah, it is. The problem comes when we try to make it do something it was never supposed to do. And the writer of Hebrews puts it this way. Look, if the law was going to take away sin, then the sacrifices would have ceased because everybody would have known they're forgiven. That's essentially what he says. 
the knowledge of sin would have passed away. There's no longer any need for us to sacrifice and keep the law because we're forgiven. We are now right with God. Do you know why we don't offer blood sacrifices in this church besides the fact that it would be hard for Kathy to clean up? (laughs) We don't offer blood sacrifices in this church because we know that the blood sacrifice that cleansed us has been offered and it has been accepted and we are therefore accepted in the presence of the Father. Now, stay with me. That's also why we do not conduct a mass in which Christ is sacrificed anew. Because that's exactly what goes on in the Roman Catholic Mass. They believe that by conducting the Mass and by participating in the the taking of the sacrament, that Christ is being slain anew to cover the sins that have been committed since the last time they participated in the Mass. It is a bondage to evil. And we do not perpetuate that because we understand we have been set free by the blood of Christ. It is a done deal, and it is finished by the hand of the Father, not by us. Completely, 100% satisfied in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is done. So, if that is the effectiveness of it, what is the affect of it? Right? Effect is what happens. Affect is how it makes you feel. There's your English lesson. (laughs) What's the affect of the gospel? What's the affect of the two altars? So the affect of the Old Testament, there's this. Hebrews 10.3 says, In those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. So what was the purpose? What was the affect? How did it make you feel? I have to bring the sacrifice again. I tried so hard to be a good person, but I failed again, over and over and over, every year, every offense, every time, everything, I am constantly being reminded of just how awful I am. It's doing his job. That's what it's supposed to do. That's the affect that God was going for. He wants us to know how desperately we need something we cannot provide. But what's the affect of the gospel? What's the affect of the Judaic sacrifice? Ephesians 1.7 says this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Do you understand just how profoundly beautiful that is? To know that you have been forgiven, That you have been redeemed, that you have been purchased out of your bondage to sin and slavery and death. That God accepts you, not because you are good, but because he has made you beautiful in his sight. Do you understand how profoundly beautiful it is that God has given to you everything needful for you to come into his presence with joy? Look, you bring nothing to the table which means that all of your garbage can stay where it lies. You don't have to pick it up and drag it around anymore. You don't have to believe those things that you used to believe about yourself. You don't have to live in that bondage to slavery. You don't have to live in that bondage to depression. You don't have to live in that bondage to fear. You don't have to live in that bondage to sin. You have been set free. You have received in him the forgiveness of sin. And it is a beautiful, profoundly glorious thing. And God transforms us by that knowledge. Listen, the devil will lose no opportunity to speak lies into your ears. And he will remind you of every terrible thing that you have done and sometimes the terrible things that you did just this morning. And he will point them out to you and he will tell you what's wrong with you and he will tell you every hateful thing that you have ever uttered in the darkness to yourself. And do you know what God says to all of that? That evil is covered in the blood of my son. And I have forgiven it. And I have chosen to forget it. And it is no longer to be remembered. It's done. And in that, there is freedom, beloved. There is freedom from everything that sets itself against you. And there is power to walk in truth. 
The affect of the gospel transforms everything about us. And it makes us aware of just how beautiful and precious it is to be his. Because you have been forgiven. All of it has been removed. We can't have this discussion without thinking about the fact that part of the difference between the tribe of Levi and the tribe of Judah and the altars at which they officiate and the priesthood which officiates at those altars is in the source of the power which is intended to create the work. Now, don't mishear me. The law was given by God. The Levitical priesthood was given by God. It has its purpose. It serves its role. God established it. And any good that it does in our lives, the the putting forward of sin for those that belong to him, the, the the conviction of sin as God is calling us to himself, all of that good and all of that power comes from God and God alone. But the way in which it was administered goes like this. You look at your flocks. You look at your herds. You bring the very best thing that you have. You, in your strength and your power, bring me your best. And you then will bring it to the priest who will sacrifice it on your behalf. And your best will have to be good enough. Because that's all you have. There was nothing else. Look at Leviticus chapter 4. We read through Leviticus, and if you recall, we, we talked about this just kind of in passing as we tried to count for the Day of Atonement, for instance, and for the cleansing of the altar, just how many critters were actually sacrificed. And uh, none of us were smart enough to count that high. But just listen to this. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel saying, If a person sins unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which ought not to be done and does any of them, if the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, then let him offer to the Lord for his sin which he has sinned, a young bull without blemish. I'm going to stop there. Because we could read on and on and on about all of the different things. But the part that I want to take your attention to is this idea that these sacrifices are being made for sins which are unintentional against the law of God. Now, what does that imply about intentional sin? Presumptuous sin. In fact, the scripture says, the soul that sins presumptuously shall die. Was there really an offering being made for the one who sinned willingly, presumptuously, intentionally, and said, ah, it's okay, I'll catch it at the sacrifice? No, that's not what this was for. This was designed for those sins which were committed just because we are frail and weak, unintentional, unpurposeful, unplanned, unpremeditated. And even then, when you accidentally messed up and accidentally violated the law, you were still required to bring something without any blemish whatsoever. And you were often required to bring multiples of those things without any blemish whatsoever. And multiples from different varieties and types of those things without any blemish whatsoever. Bulls and goats and sheep and turtle doves and wave offerings and grain offerings and thigh offerings and heave offerings and wine offerings and every other imaginable thing you could do. And all of it to cover over the sin that you committed unintentionally. This is the best man can do. It's man's power to try and produce something that might perhaps make a difference. But listen to 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 18 says, Knowing that you were not redeemed 
with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. You see, all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament were insufficient because they were man's best. But the sacrifice that was offered on the altar of Judah, which, let's face it, is a cross outside of the city of Jerusalem, was of the Lamb of God. It was the perfect Lamb offered. The blood spilt was without spot, without blemish, without any stain of contamination. The blood spilt was the blood of the God-man, Jesus. He was God-made flesh. He was God with us. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that he divested himself of his glory, that he laid aside his equality with God. It wasn't something for him to cling to, but he became one of us, taking upon himself the likeness of a man. He came and he lived as one of us, and he submitted and surrendered even to the death of a cross. And he did all of this because his work was sufficient for our need. Well, I would understand this. The working of God will always adequately provide for what is needed in your life. Amen. He will always give enough to remove your sin and to remove your need and to remove your doubt and to remove your fear. Because it is not your best that is in play, but God's best. And this is the sacrifice that is offered on the altar. This is what makes the difference. And it also has to be understood that there is a purity here. The altar itself had to be redeemed. Do you understand that? When Israel built the altar and when they consecrated the altar, the Bible tells us they had to redeem it. Leviticus 16.18 says, He shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. Why? Because the altar was made by human hands and defiled as we touched it. Hebrews chapter 9, starting at verse 12. Turn there if you would. Hebrews 9, starting at verse 12, it says this. We'll start at verse 11. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. How much better is it? How much more precious is it that Christ himself is pure in every way? He is able to offer the sacrifice, not on an altar made with hands, but upon the altar of God, which stands in the very throne room of heaven. The scripture affirms for us that when Christ died, he went to the presence of the Father. And what did he go there to do but to sprinkle his own blood upon the very mercy seat of God, upon the very throne of God, on the altar of heaven, and say, this is my sacrifice for my people. And God pronounced it done. It is finished. There is no need for any further sacrifice ever to be obtained. There is no need for us to ever again draw the blood of Christ or slay him in any fashion, for his work has been accomplished fully and completely. He is sufficient because he is pure. And the altar at which he offered it is pure, and the altar at which, I mean, sorry, the sacrifice offered at the altar itself is pure. So if we have been washed in his blood, if we have been made clean, then it also means that there is an identity connected to the two altars. 
What, what is the identity of the altar according to Jesus if you're under the law? What did he tell the, the Pharisees they were? They are sons of their father, the devil, right? Or listen to how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 2. Back up with me to Ephesians 2. We'll read the first three verses or so of Ephesians 2. You he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were, get this, by nature, children of wrath, just as the others. So what are we under the Levitical law? We are by nature children of wrath. That is our identity. That, that's a big buzzword in the culture today. Identity politics rules everything. Everybody wants to talk about their identity and they want to be cats and they want to be mice and they want to be birds and they want to be girls or boys or its or this or that or whatever it might be. They want to be something that they're not. But let me tell you what they are apart from Christ. They are damned. They are under the wrath of God. They are children of wrath. And that is their identity until Christ frees them. And it doesn't matter what flavor they put onto it. That is what they are. And that is what we were until Christ freed us. Beloved, hear this. It is not that you were special. And it is not that you were smart. It is that God was gracious and merciful and made you live so that you could call out to Him for mercy. Amen. We dare not look down our holy noses at those who are themselves still condemned because they are by their very nature children of wrath. And it is our job to preach the gospel to them with grace and with mercy and with love and with passion. Speak the truth, but speak it with grace. Because it is the gospel which will save them. And if we get confused about this and, and get caught up in the mess and the chaos that is being provoked around us, we just need to shut up and say nothing about anything to anybody. Because by getting into the middle of it and arguing and screaming and yelling and carrying on about all of it, we are making it worse. Beloved, if you belong to Christ, you have one message and one message only. And it is that Jesus Christ died for sin and there is forgiveness in His name and by His blood. You carry the message of the gospel and nothing else matters because nothing else is real. It's all madness. It's all foolishness. It's all mental illness. It's all sin. It's all death. It's all wrong. And there's not anybody on any side of the political spectrum which is more right than the other based upon their own position. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that is the only thing that matters. And we need to speak that with power and with truth and with purpose because in that, identities are changed forever. Don't believe me? Read on. Ephesians chapter 2, down at verse 19. Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Look, if the identity under the law left people condemned, what family did it put them into? It left them as outsiders. Jesus told the Pharisees, you are of your father the devil. You're an outsider to me. You're not part of me. 
That was their reality. That was what they were. Ephesians 2, verses 11 and 12 says, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's the family they're a part of. But what is our family? Galatians 4, verses 3 to 5 says, Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. That would be us. That we might receive the adoption as sons. Beloved, if you're found in Christ, you have been adopted into the family of God. And you are no longer what you were, and you are no longer who you were, and you are no longer a part of the family that you used to be a part of. You have been brought into His family, and you are His blood-bought, most precious child. And with this reality comes the final culmination of both of these altars. And in a word, it is the question of eternity. Because both of these altars left to themselves lead to a final destination. There is eternity. Everybody lives forever. Did you know that? We talk about eternal life like those who are not found in Christ are going to die and just vanish or something. But they're not. They're going to live forever. Eternity is the reality of one of two addresses, if you will. Those who are found in Christ and those who are found outside of Christ. Revelation 20, verse 15 says, Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Period. If you are not found in the Lamb's book of life, if your name is not written in His ledger, you have no hope, you have no argument, you have no way of getting it there when you stand before Him. Anyone not found written in the Lamb's book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The end. And it is not a consuming fire that will cause them to cease to be. It is the fire of God's wrath. So just chew on this reality for just a moment with me. A lot of people who are anxiously awaiting going to hell to party with their friends think that they will go to hell and be in the place where God is not so they are free from his laws and his rules and his stubborn harsh, puritanical wisdom and desire for their lives. Fill in expletives peppered throughout. They do not understand the truth that hell is not the place where God is not, but hell is the place where God is in wrath. And the God that they seek to avoid will be their constant terror for all of eternity. They will not escape. They cannot escape. For there is no escape from God. But those found written in the Lamb's book of life, they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. Revelation 21, verses 26 and 27. But there shall by no means enter into it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. We come into the presence of God, and it is the most exclusive of realities. For nothing comes in that is not His. But remember, we come in not because we are good, but because He is gracious. We come in Because He has done all of the work to save us. We come in because He has written our name in His book. Not us. You you may say, well, I signed the signature card. That did not put your name in the Lamb's book of life. 
The Lamb's book of life is written by his hand, in his blood, by his will, and for his purpose. And in the end, it is our joy to be where he is. And all of it comes because God changed the priesthood and the tribe and the attributes and the purpose and the power of what was given to his son who was given for us. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us wisdom. And God, I pray that you would grant us grace to understand just how awesome it is that you have done this work. And I pray, God, that as we think on the difference between the altar and the difference between those who officiate at it, that we would understand just how rich your love for us is. God, let us be found faithful. Make us single-hearted and single-minded for the sake of the gospel. And let us, in all that we do and all that we are, never cease to praise your name. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.